We're glad you're here. My name's Robert. I'm just one of the pastors here at Redemption Hill, and I have the privilege this morning of leading us in the reading and teaching from God's Word. Uh, One of the things we like to reiterate around here is that we really do believe that it's God's Word working together with God's Spirit that God uses as the, the primary instrument for the transforming, establishing, rooting, grounding of His people. We really do believe that God's Spirit working together with His Word is what God primarily uses to transform us and to ground us, which is why when we come together on a morning like this, we sing songs that are rooted in God's Word. We read God's Word aloud to one another. We pray prayers dependent upon what God has said about Himself and His promises in His Word. And then we take a a proportion of our time together and we read God's Word and we teach from it believing and expecting that God will do by His Spirit with His Word in our hearts what only He can do. And that's why we do this. It's what we're doing right now. But I want to also tell you this. There, there's something else happening as we're reading and, and teaching God's Word together. And, and I haven't really thought of it very much until this week when, when I read, and, and maybe you haven't thought about it this very much, but this week I was reading a particular book and the author was quoting the, the New Dictionary of Cultural Literacy. And he actually quotes a writer, E.D. Hirsch, who wrote in the New Dictionary of Cultural Literacy, and this is what Dr. Hirsch actually wrote. He said, no one in the English-speaking world can be considered literate without a basic knowledge of the Bible. Literate people in India, whose religious traditions are not based on the Bible, but whose common language is English, must know about the Bible in order to understand English within their own country. All educated speakers of American English need to understand what is meant when someone describes a contest as being between David and Goliath, or whether a person who has the wisdom of Solomon is wise or foolish, or whether saying, my cup runneth over, means the person feels fortunate or unfortunate, whether you're describing someone as the salt of the earth, or saying that you fought the good fight, you're speaking the language of the Bible. He goes on to write in this same dictionary of cultural literacy that there was a study done in 2006. English professors from America's top universities all agreed, and he quotes this particular study directly, this study of these English literary teachers said, regardless of a person's faith, an educated person needs to know the Bible. Saying that the Bible is indispensable and absolutely crucial for a person who wishes to be considered educated. So, along with God's Spirit, working with God's Word to root you in His grace and transform your heart, we're helping you be more culturally literate. We're helping you understand what people are saying when different expressions come up in conversation, and maybe our text this morning will help you better understand what someone is meaning when you hear them talk about the kiss of death. Or maybe what they were meaning when you hear of them speaking of someone else as being someone who was a bit like Judas. Or maybe you'll better know what you meant to say about someone else when you called them Judas at some point in your life. You see, without a a proper understanding of the Bible, at least a, a cursory literary understanding of the Bible, we would not know what the kiss of death really meant. Or or what it really means to think of someone and speak of someone as being like Judas. I mean, just think for a moment. You can respond to me. What has Judas become synonymous with in our own language? 
betrayal. To speak of Judas, someone being like Judas, or an action being similar to Judas's, is naturally referring to betrayal. Something common to all of us. We all know the horrible pain, the nauseating pain of being betrayed by someone. If we're honest, and we often say that we realize that this can be the most difficult place to be honest with yourself because you think you've got to be someone else for everybody around you, but if you're just honest, you know the chilling feeling of calculating a betrayal against someone else. Betrayal is a a reality of life in a fallen world, a a sinful reality of life in a fallen world. And and if we really stop to be honest, betrayal takes on a a whole host and and manner of different forms. It's it's easy to think of very large incidents of of betrayal. It's easy to think of the the Judas moments and the Benedict Arnolds and, and the Trojan horses of life that are these huge catastrophic moments. But if we stop and just unpack a bit of the nature of betrayal, we will realize that betrayal takes on a whole host of forms because at its root, betrayal is taking something from someone else for yourself. It's taking from someone their reputation, their, their life, something from someone for the betterment of your own standing, your own ego, your own reputation, in, in particular in the, in the church, thinking about us, thinking about God's people. But betrayal doesn't often come in these huge moments and these huge incidences. Betrayal happens over the course of a series of, of gossiping conversations where one seeks to remove the reputation of another discredit the reputation of someone else with the hopes of making themselves look better in the eyes of others. Part of the reason gossip in particular has such the pain that it has in the lives of people is because at root it is a form of betrayal. One writer in speaking about betrayal and in particular the form it takes in gossip in the church, he says that gossip is a very particular a very unique type of betrayal that is all too common amongst God's people. And then he said it's helpful to think of gossip and the betrayal of gossip as throwing a brother or sister, a member of your own body, under the bus of your own ego. It's taking from someone else that which was theirs, their reputation and trying to better your own with it. Betrayal, and in its forms in particular, and things like gossip and insincere flattery and and all the different faces that it can take, it it, it can become, for God's people, for a local church like this, it it can become the kiss of death. And if you really think about it, betrayal, and even in its smaller, lesser known and diagnosed forms like gossip, they really are, when you stand to think about it, the antithesis of Christ-likeness, the antithesis of Jesus. We've been journeying through Mark's gospel, looking at Jesus, the life, the ministry of Jesus, listening to what he says about himself and, and why he's come and, and what he's done and, and what we've seen over and over and over again that Jesus, the love of Christ, the, the work of Christ is one that is self-giving. It's giving of himself for others. It's a self-sacrificing for the sake and the well-being of others. But betrayal, 
in its other forms, like gossip, very specifically. That's the taking of something from someone for our own benefit. Christ is laying down himself, his life, for the well-being of others and betrayal. It's taking the life, the well-being, the reputation of others for the building up of our own. And this week is, I've been wrestling with the text and wrestling with this story. And you can kind of guess where we're going to be and where we're going. There's a question that's been rattling around in my brain and rattling around in my, my heart. and It's a question we're going to deal with this morning as we come to the text. I want you to imagine a, a continuum, a straight line with two polar ends. And on one end, I, I want you to see Jesus. And I want Jesus in this spectrum to represent a self-giving, sacrificial love. And on the other end, I, I want you to see Judas. And I want Judas to be for us in this moment a self-serving, self-righteous way of living. And the question I've been asking myself as I've been reading this text and and thinking about how this story that we're going to look at this morning goes from information about the life and ministry of Jesus to, to actual transformation of the life that we actually live now, I've had to ask myself, how do we, living in a fallen world, facing the inevitability of betrayal, the inevitability of pain and the heinous wake that those kinds of things leave in our life, how do we continue to take steps forward on that continuum and on that spectrum towards a self-giving, self-sacrificing love, towards a Christ-likeness, knowing that those in which we're going to love, those in which we're going to be with, to give ourselves to, are going to hurt us? I mean, the natural reality is, if you're anything like me, when you experience that kind of hurt or that kind of pain, the immediate response is either to give it right back, how how do we move along this spectrum and love others, not the way maybe that we've been loved by them, that's retaliation, but I also want to bunker down and protect my reputation at all costs. Whatever damage has been done by whatever has happened, I certainly don't want to get any further. So I bunker down and and begin to rock myself in and and not move towards loving others, giving myself over others, risking that same hurt again. How do do I love someone and move down that continuum of self-sacrificial love, not trying to retaliate and not trying to manipulate but to continually give and risk to love the way that I've been loved by Christ. How do we do that? What motivates us to do that? There's no formula to it. There's no steps by which we take. This isn't going to be a step one, two, three, four kind of message. What is it that motivates us to continue to give of ourselves in the inevitable face of betrayal and pain and hurt? This morning, as we pick up the story of Jesus' life and ministry, I I believe that as we locate ourselves in this moment in his life, and we allow ourselves to understand and to feel and to be a part of what's going on in this slice of his life, as we get through it, God is going to give us an awareness and an understanding of exactly what it is that continues to move us down that continuum of self-sacrificial love for the well-being of others, even in the face of imminent hurt and pain. So if you've got your Bibles, Mark chapter 14, 
we're going to pick up the story to kind of locate those of you who are, who are guests with us this morning as to where we are in the gospel according to Mark. We've been journeying with Jesus and his disciples over their three-year ministry throughout the region of Galilee. They've come into Jerusalem celebrating the Passover. And where we find ourselves this morning in the story of Jesus' life and ministry is we are in Jesus' final night on the earth. We are going to look at what is arguably one of the darkest, most chaotic moments in that night. It's a transition moment in Jesus' life. He has spent part of that evening having Passover with his disciples and then spending a very private and peaceful time in a garden in prayer with his father. And then in just a matter of hours, he is going to be very publicly tormented, crucified and put to death. And the moment that we're going to look at this morning is the transition point between that private peacefulness of Jesus with his disciples and the very public reality of his torment and crucifixion. This is the hinge on which that point in Jesus' life is going to swing. And it's a very dark moment. It's a crazy moment. It's a brief moment. But Mark wants us to feel this moment and marvel at Jesus in the midst of it. So Mark chapter 14, we're going to pick it up in verse 41. Rayshon did this last week, but it leads us right in this morning. Jesus says, it's enough. The, the hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Now verse 43. Immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve. And with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. And I want you to notice something because it's at the very outset of this vignette in Jesus' life, this very brief moment in this night of Jesus' life that Mark focuses our attention in the very beginning of this moment to something he wants us to see and wants us to feel throughout the whole telling of this moment. And that is the nauseating and horrific nature of what's about to happen. Mark says something that, that seems like it might be an inconsequential detail, something that doesn't need to be repeated, but he does it purposefully to focus the, our attention and even our heart onto the heinousness of what's about to happen. He introduces Judas as what? One of the twelve. Did you really need to be told that again? Was that new information as you're reading it? It's purposeful on Mark's part. Because he wants you to feel just how horrific this moment is. The reality of it is you and I have the privilege of reading the story of Jesus, the life, the ministry, the good news of Jesus on this side of his death and resurrection. We know the story. We know how it plays out. In this moment, Jesus and his disciples did not have that vantage point in perspective. For them, this was shocking. You've got to hear this and understand this. Judas was an exemplary disciple of Jesus. Now, that is not how we think of Judas. We know the role Judas played in the story. It's not how some writers and historians want to portray Judas. Some want to say that at some point along the way, the other 11 had an inkling of what was really going on in Judas and had already begun to worry about Judas and not trust Judas. And what happens here in this evening only goes to confirm what they had already felt. That's not true. There was nothing in the other 11 that gives any indication that there was a level of mistrust in Judas that gave them pause to think that this might happen. When Jesus gathers the 12 around him, 
they have to determine who it is they trust. Who is the one of the 12 that we trust the most to handle the, the money and the resources? Most likely then the one that handles the logistics of what it is they're going to do. Who do we trust the most? Well, Matthew's got the most experience with money. He was a tax collector, but I don't know that we quite trust Matthew like that. Who is the one that we trust to do all this for us? It's Judas. Judas was the one who had lived in some sense in such a way that those that were around him trusted him to handle the details of the resources, the finances, and the logistics of what it was they were doing. When Jesus was with his disciples at Passover earlier in the evening, he said, one of you is going to betray me. Did they all turn and stare at Judas and go, oh, finally. Been wondering when you were going to say something about that. I've had my suspicions about this guy all along. No. They all thought it was them. Are you talking about me? Could it be, could it be me? They weren't going, oh, I've always thought it might be Judas. He seems like a shady character. No. Judas was Jesus' friend. For three years, they had spent their entire life together. They had walked everywhere together. They had eaten their meals together. When they laid down at night, they all shared the same space. When they sat down or laid down and kind of reclined to eat around a table, do you know who was at Jesus' left side? Judas. That's how the order would have gone because of his role in the twelve. He was Jesus' friend. Jesus' love for Judas, Jesus' love for Judas' family, Jesus' care and concern about Judas' health, Jesus' care and love and concern for Judas' well-being, it was all real. It wasn't put on. It wasn't fake. Judas was Jesus' friend. Which is why reminding us that he was one of the twelve is so Horrific. It would have been one thing if Jesus was taken captive and seized and arrested by his enemies. It's an altogether nauseating thing to see that what's happening to Jesus is coming to the hands of one of his closest friends. Being as close to Jesus as Judas was, he became the perfect person to execute this plan. When he got up and he left the table, when he left Passover, he went to the religious leaders. You can read about that in the other gospel accounts about this. But you see the gifting and in some sense the executive function that had been given to Judas that the others even recognized in giving him this, this position play out. A carefully calculated plan was crafted. The religious leaders, they, they couldn't figure out how to arrest Jesus. And they had no real claim against him. They were afraid of the crowd. They didn't know what would happen if they got him in the middle of the festival, but the city was so populated because of Passover, so many people coming, they would never know where to find him even if they tried. And then Judas comes to the door. Being close to Jesus, he knew that either the itinerary for the night was after Passover, they were going to take time to go to the garden and pray, or he just knew that was a regular pattern of Jesus's. We don't, we don't actually know exactly. Being familiar with Jesus, he knew to some degree of certainty what was going to happen that night, and so he went. And he sold his closest friend for 30 pieces of silver. And the plan that had been stirring in his mind was hatched. And he began to dictate that plan out to the religious leaders, the chief priests, the scribes, and the Pharisees. And we can read what actually happens. Look at verse 44. The betrayer, that's who he's become now had given them a sign. 
Judas wasn't going to leave it to chance. He gave them a sign saying, the one I kiss is the man. Seize him and, and lead him away under guard. I mean, the most heinous sting operation ever to occur in the history of mankind, it's going to go down on a kiss. And one commentator said that this is the ultimate act of love performed for a mission of pure hatred. Verse 45 says that when Judas came to Jesus, he went up to him at once and he said, Rabbi, and then he kissed him. And again, Mark doesn't waste words. There's no extra words here. They didn't have delete buttons and scrolls of paper. It was very precious stuff. He's not wasting words. There's something he wants you to feel in the way he writes this. You see the utter hypocrisy at play in this moment. Out of one side of his mouth, Judas can come to Jesus with, the, with, a, with a greeting of respect, a greeting of admiration. Rabbi, I'm coming to you. And out of the other side of the same mouth comes what we now refer to as the kiss of death. And it was no ordinary kiss. I don't know how you think about this moment when you read the story. I don't know, maybe you've seen some movies, or I don't know what you think about, but you know that it's customary in other parts of the world, even to this day, to, to greet someone that you care about, to greet someone that you respect, to greet someone that you have a fondness or affection for with a kiss. That's, that's very normal. Now I'll never forget when we were in Central Asia last year, seeing grown men not just do that, but then walk down the street holding each other's pinkies. It's the strangest thing in the world. But it's just part of the way the culture in that part of the world works. So it's not uncommon to think that Judas, coming to his rabbi, who he respected, who he had admiration and affection for, would kiss him upon greeting him. But Mark and Luke and Matthew let us know that this was no ordinary kiss. See, they had a word for that kind of greeting, but that's not the word they use here. When Mark and when Luke, when they write about this kiss that Judas gives Jesus, they use the same word that you'll find used for the way the father or the prodigal son kissed him upon the day he returned home. You think about the lavish affection the father had for his son when he came back. And he lavished his love and his hugs and his affection and his kisses upon him. That's the same word. It's a smart, I mean, excuse me, Luke uses this word when he speaks about Mary anointing Jesus at Simon's house. We just saw that a couple of weeks ago. When Mary broke that expensive jar of nard and anointed Jesus with it and poured it over his head, Luke tells us that she poured it over Jesus and she began to profusely kiss his feet as she wiped them off with her hair. That's the same word. What happened here in the garden was not a, a warm handshake of a kiss. I mean, that's what those kisses of greeting are. They're just a warmer version of our handshakes. That's not what this was. Judas came up to Jesus, greeted him as rabbi, and then lavishly, profusely began to kiss Jesus, like an, like an overflow of affection. Strategically, Judas did this so that those who had come to seize Jesus would know exactly who they were supposed to get. It's dark. There's no lights. I mean, what, if, what if Peter stepped out and said, I'm Jesus, and they got the wrong guy? That's why you need a signal and he wasn't going to leave it to chance. He grabs Jesus. He begins to kiss Jesus, shower affection on Jesus so that those who were around would know exactly who it was they were supposed to grab. But at the same time, Judas could have chosen any signal, anything to tip them off. But he chose the most hypocritical way to do this. And with each kiss and move of affection, the dagger, so to speak, 
went deeper between the shoulder blades of the one he had spent his three years with and had loved him the way he had loved him. Did, did Judas really think the way that he greeted Jesus would somehow obscure the fact that there was a huge crowd with swords and clubs gathering around them? Did he really think Jesus would all of a sudden miss what was going on? One writer said that the mocking that Jesus would endure as he goes to the cross, this is where it begins. And in horror of horrors, it's been started by one of his own. From Jesus' lips has only come life, only come truth, only come goodness, only come beauty. And from Judas' lips has only now come death. And in Mark's very swift account of Jesus' life and ministry, Judas's 15 minutes of fame are done. He's not going to mention him again. No more Judas. He's simply now the betrayer. He wants you to feel how nauseating this moment is in the garden. How horrific this moment is in the garden. Mark says that at that point, those that had come laid their hands on Jesus and they seized him. He already said that it was a crowd that came with swords and clubs, but you need to be very clear about something. This was no mob that gathered on the street as as people went down the street towards the garden. This wasn't people coming out of their houses at night with swords and clubs just wondering where they're going, but they see the chaos of the moment and they want to join in and all of a sudden now there's all these people in the garden, but they don't know why they're there. This was a carefully calculated plan. If you go and read Matthew and you go and read John, go and read Luke, go and read their accounts of this moment, Mark is very brief. He's trying to get us to the cross as quickly as he can. John and Luke in particular will let you know that this crowd was made up of predominantly Roman soldiers and temple guards. This was no rowdy, angry mob of people just flooding the street because they see chaos going. This was a carefully calculated plan. And the particular words that John and Luke use to describe the temple guards and the soldiers, if you use those words to see how many men those words represent, most scholars, most historians say that a conservative estimate of the crowd that night was somewhere around 200. Armed with clubs, armed with swords, coming to seize Jesus. And so he wants you to see and even feel then, even the moment, the horrific nature of the betrayal, the nauseating reality of what's happening, but at the same time, the chaos. I mean, imagine the moment like a human. They're in the gardens late at night. It's extremely dark. Even if there was a full moon that night on which Passover usually happened, they're in the olive garden, olive grove. Not the olive garden. We can't even say that, can we? (laughs) Different kind of breadstick. They're they're, they're in the, the olive grove. So whatever light's coming from the moon is going to be obscured. 200-some men armed, swords and, and clubs have come. Jesus is there with his disciples. Judas has been gone for a couple of hours, and now he's come back. Matthew writes in his recording of this moment the shock that he had when Judas came back. And behold, it, it's Judas. Like still, even at that moment, shocked that this was actually going to happen And now 200 men with swords and clubs have come with the intention of seizing Jesus and taking him by force. It was a tense, chaotic, 
powder keg of a moment. So leave it to Peter to try to light the fuse. If it's going to go boom, let Peter set it off. We've seen all along he's the one that prefers to ask for forgiveness rather than permission. So verse 47 says it was at that moment that one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Well, John tells us it was Peter. There's all kinds of speculation as to why Mark doesn't tell us it was Peter, and that's for another day and another time, but John tells us very clearly it was Peter. And it would have been common for a fisherman like Peter to have one of the double-edged daggers that was very common in those days back then. They weren't useful just for killing people. They were very useful on an everyday practical level, especially for a fisherman who would have to cut nets and cut rope and, and cut fish. It wasn't uncommon for him to have one, but what you can't expect of a fisherman in a moment like that, with that kind of tension and that kind of chaos and that kind of drama building, is you can't expect him to wield that thing like a well-trained soldier. So when Peter, impetuous Peter at that moment, pulls that dagger out, he takes a swing and he misses. And don't think this was some intentional Van Gogh moment. I'm going to slice off the ear and just show you what I can do. Peter took a swipe and he missed. And what he got was an ear. He was going for a neck. He was going for a skull. He was just off. When the pressure came and the adrenaline's running, when everything's happening in the moment, Peter was driven by his impetuousness and his bravado and, well, ultimately he failed in trying to do what he was trying to do. And if you think about it, again, like a human, think about the moment. This thing should have absolutely erupted. I mean, there's no reason why this moment should not have absolutely blown up. But it was at this point that Mark tells us that Jesus speaks. Jesus says something. And in Jesus' response to what is actually happening here, we we see a fundamental error of of thinking, of, of understanding him. A fundamental error in misunderstanding who he is and and why he's come that was as common to them as it is to us. I mean, listen to what Jesus says. Jesus said to them, have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I was with you in the temple teaching and and you didn't seize me. I mean, on on one hand, Jesus is calling out the, the cowardice of the moment. Like you've got no reason to actually arrest me legitimately, so you've got to come up with some kind of plan to get me at night, to get me in secret, to arrest me, because you're cowards. You couldn't do it in the broad daylight. You had every opportunity to legitimately arrest me, but you couldn't do it. And at the same time, as he's calling out to some degree the cowardice of the moment, he's exposing a fundamental misunderstanding of who he is. And what his kingdom is really all about. I mean, why did Judas think it was so necessary to have so many guards, so many people to take Jesus by force, to seize him, to capture him? Why did he think that was going to be necessary? I mean, why did Peter, in that moment, think that it was necessary for what Jesus had come to do to pull that dagger out and take a swing at somebody? Just, just go after it. You see, they've been with Jesus for three years. They've heard everything that he's taught. They've seen everything that he's done. 
Yet their heart still held to a misguided notion of who he really was and what he came to do. Both of them, to varying degrees, still expected Jesus to be a political messiah. The way they understood who Jesus was and what he was supposed to do was still wrapped up in some type of political and military liberation of Israel from the occupation of Rome. At some point, he was going to have to do something. And when Jesus set Israel free from Roman occupation, certainly Jesus would then put them in positions of authority and power. That's what they were looking for. It's pure speculation. I'm going to tell you that right now. But most scholars think that it was at Simon's house when Mary anointed Jesus with that nard, when she broke that nard and, and poured it over Jesus, you get the first time that Judas speaks in the gospel account, and what does he say? You remember? To Jesus, to Mary, to the others, he said, that's a waste. And Jesus said it was beautiful. And it's pure speculation because you're looking into the heart and what you can't do, but most believe that it was at some point at that moment when the nail was finally driven into the coffin for Judas when he finally determined that Jesus was not going to be the Messiah that he had expected. Jesus was not going to be the one who was going to set Israel free from Rome and then give him and the others positions of power and authority in that kingdom. Judas had a particular expectation of Jesus and the values that Jesus has been espousing and the purposes that Jesus has been teaching and the life that Jesus was moving forward to was not consistent with what Judas was expecting and wanting. And so we had to get something out of it before it was done. But what about Peter? And Peter, just like the others, had fallen prey to the same general expectation. Again, it's just putting Peter in the moment and thinking about why he would have done what he has done. But if you go and read John's account of it, when they come to get Jesus, they ask, we're here to, see Je- we're here to get Jesus of, of Nazareth. And you can go read it. Jesus says, I am he. And at that point, the guards fell back in awe. Maybe Peter with that same thought that this is, oh, it's time. I don't know how we're going to get over 200 people with swords and clubs. Or, oh, wait a minute. They just fell back. Now's the time. Let me get my dagger out. Here we go. That freedom, it's on its way. He can do it. I don't know. I'm giving Peter motive there. It's speculation. But the reality of it is their expectation of who Jesus was and what he had come to do was still misguided. And because their expectation of him was misguided, their expectation of how the kingdom of God would move forward in their day was totally wrong. And if we're honest, again, when it's difficult to do, many times our expectation of Jesus is to meet our idea of who he should be. Our expectation of his kingdom is to look like the kingdom that we create in our heads And because we have misguided expectations of who Jesus is and why he's come and what his kingdom is like, we have misguided ideas about how his kingdom advances even in our own day and age. It's another sermon for another day. But they had been with him for three days and had heard him say very clearly, I have come, and here's why I've come. I've come to give my life as a ransom for many. I mean, make no mistake, there's going to be a day It's going to come. God will execute justice. Justice against sin is coming. There will be a day when which God will make all things right. But I've come. Right here, right now. I've come to give my life as a ransom for many. 
The victory that Jesus was going to establish, the freedom that Jesus was going to bring, it wasn't going to come through a sword. It wasn't going to come through a political revolution. It wasn't going to come through a a well-written piece of legislation. It was going to come through suffering. It was going to come through sacrifice. It was going to come through substitution. And it was going to come through his death. And that's not what they were looking for. It's not what they were expecting. But it's what they needed to see. It's what you and I so desperately need to see. See, the reality of it is, the wages of sin against God, the wages, the, the, the deserved wage of sin against an eternal and holy God is death itself. And Jesus was very clear in his teaching on the kingdom of God. Make no mistake, a day of justice and a day of judgment is going to come. There will be a time in which all who have sinned against God will be judged in their sin, and God will judge sin justly, period. And the only hope that those of us, all of us, who have sinned against an eternal God have in the face of the justice of God against sin is that we could be forgiven. And the only way, the only hope that any of us have to be forgiven of our sin in the face of sin against an eternal and holy God is that someone else takes our punishment, our wages, in our place. This, Jesus said, is why he had come. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. And this is exactly what he did. We know that God accepted Jesus' sacrifice in the place of sinners because he raised him from the dead. After spending time with his disciples, he ascended to the right hand of God where he sits right now in all authority and all power so that we can know with confidence that anyone who by faith believes in Jesus as the ransom for their sin, as their substitute, as the one who took the just punishment that we deserve for our sin in our place, anyone who believes upon him by faith and repents of their sins will be completely forgiven. That's why he came. That's why he was there, to give his life as a ransom for many. Freedom, victory, but it wasn't going to come the way they'd expected. That's not what it was going to be. Judas missed it. Peter even missed it. He came to lay down his life. Resistance would be futile. Resistance would be pointless. So you've got this hurricane of a moment, this tense chaos of a time in the life of Jesus. Darkness, betrayal, sin. But right in the middle of it, you've got this strength. You've got this peace. You've got this authority. Let the scriptures, Jesus said, be fulfilled. Make no mistake who's actually in control here. Make no mistake, 200 armed guards, Judas coming, assistants and associates of the high priest coming to take Jesus. Make no mistake who's actually in control. Their seizing of Jesus is simply fulfilling his purposes and his ends. He's making very clear in his response that he's the one in control even through the actions and intentions of sinful men. 
You can't write this off simply as a tragedy. It's the fulfilling of God's word. Let the scriptures be fulfilled. Most specifically, the one he just referenced. Verse 27, Zechariah 13, 7, Jesus quoted when he said to his disciples, you will all fall away. For it's written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. You're nauseated by the betrayal. You're horrified at what's actually happening. You should be chilled to the bone by the fulfillment of that prophecy. Look at verse 50. They all left him. They all fled. They all had just drank from the cup at Passover. They all had just pledged their life to Jesus if need be. Now they all have fled, including a very unique young man. Verse 51, a young man who had followed them with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. They seized him too, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. His story is there to emphasize the totality of the failure of everyone around Jesus. The totality of the desertion. Judas, Peter, the other 11 fleeing, even this young man who had been a follower, evidently a part of the crowd, probably asleep, heard all the chaos, comes out to see what's going on, they grab him, he lets his clothes go, and he runs. Everybody, from his closest to the most anonymous, they've all failed him. They've all left him. Now here's what I want us to see. This is going to get us back to the question, all right? N.T. Wright, and I don't commend all of his writing to you at all, but he wrote a very good little commentary on the Gospel of Mark. And I want you to hear what he says about this moment and how this is going to help us answer the question we had at the beginning. Wright said that in having this young man close this scene and flee naked from the garden, Mark is trying to remind you about another garden. In the Garden of Eden, there were people who were given a test and they failed. They were stripped naked, and they fled in shame. And now here we are centuries later, and there's another garden, and there's another test, and everybody around Jesus is failing. Someone is even stripped naked and leaving in shame. But something's different. In the middle of this garden, there's someone who's passing the test. When Adam and Eve fled naked from the garden, just covered with fig leaves, they saw that there was something that would keep them from ever going back. Do you remember what that was? Remember the story? God had put an angel there at the entrance of the garden with a flaming sword to and fro. Adam and Eve reminded they could never go back to the presence of God without passing through that sword of God's justice. No way back. Our sins, Wright said, have separated us from God. There's no way back into the presence of God unless someone takes the sword of divine justice in our place. Jesus is standing in that garden, facing the ultimate sword of divine justice, and he stood there firm for you and for me. When you think back to the question, with the reality of imminent hurt, the reality of betrayal, and the pain that we know that comes with it, what would motivate us to continue 
to love people in a self-giving, self-sacrificing way, to lay down even our reputation, the possibility of it being taken, it being damaged, it being scarred. What would move us to do that? What would compel us to love others? Not that we could be loved by them, that's manipulating them, Compel us to love others, not simply in the way they've loved us, because that might mean retaliation. What would move us from feeling the need to, to throw each other at any time under the bus of our own ego? The motivation comes from whether or not you see Jesus standing in the garden, simply reversing places with his enemy and forgiving them, or whether you see Jesus standing in the garden in your place, taking upon himself what you deserved. You see, if you see Jesus just setting the example of how to switch places with your enemy and say, I forgive you, then the next time you're hurt or you risk the reality of being hurt or your reputation tarnished, you're going to say, I can't do that. You're going to be crushed if you see Jesus standing in that night as an example that you're supposed to emulate, but you will be saved and transformed if you marvel at Jesus standing that night in that garden firm in your place. Though he had no sin and had committed no crime, he allowed himself to be seized in your place for your sin. He who had the name above all names in grace and mercy, came to this earth in anonymity and allowed himself to suffer what we deserve for our sin in our place so that by God's grace we could receive the name of God and be a part of the family of God. If you see Jesus in that garden, in that night, not simply standing back and exchanging places with his captors and saying, I forgive you, but standing in that garden in your place, being seized and ultimately taken to his death for you, you will be able to say of your life now and your reputation now, that's not the end of the story. He has accomplished for me a new reputation and a new name. The reputation that I have and the name that I have is one that God has given me and will last forever. All of a sudden, the degree to which you marvel at the way that God has loved you in Christ, the way that Jesus substituted himself for you even in that moment, the degree to which you can marvel at the way that you have been loved, you'll be able to risk loving others. You won't hold that reputation quite as tightly anymore because you know, ultimately, the reputation that comes on this side of eternity, it's not the end of the story. It's ultimately not your identity. The degree to which we can marvel at the grace of God and the way that he has loved us in Christ and substituted himself for us will determine the motivation we have to move across this continuum to continually to put ourselves out to love others, even in the face of what must be imminent hurt, imminent betrayal, imminent pain. We have the capacity to love as we marvel at the way in which we've been loved. We have the capacity to love others in a self-giving, self-sacrificing way regardless of whether or not they will ever betray us. Because what moves us in that direction is a tremendous, overwhelming gratitude for the way that God has loved us in Christ. 
this morning, we're going to respond to God's word. As we prepare to respond to God's word, I want you to make no mistake, Mark means for us as we're going through this story to feel the darkness. There's no happy bow on the end of this little vignette. It's a dark moment in the life of Jesus. It's chaotic. It's loud. It's, there's betrayal. There's sin. There's shame. He wants us to feel the reality of the darkness, but yet, Mark wants us to be able to marvel at Jesus, to marvel at the grace of our Savior who was seized, taken in our place for our sin, who would substitute himself to get what we deserve so that by the mercy of God, through faith in him, we would receive what only he deserved. Mark wants us to marvel at Jesus. His body will be broken in our place for our sin. His blood will be shed, not only for the forgiveness of our sin, but the cleansing of our hearts. Friends, when we understand why Jesus came, who he is, and the nature of his kingdom, we begin to see that it's through the continued proclamation of this good news and a life lived with an increasing awe in the way that which we have been loved, the kingdom of God continues to advance in our day as we replicate and reflect that love to others. That's how it works. That's what we get to celebrate and marvel at as we respond to God's word together this morning in taking communion. And so as you prepare yourself to come and, and receive communion, I just want you to ask, answer this question and I'm gonna leave it with you and we're gonna pray. This morning as you think on God's word in this story, do you, do you primarily see Jesus standing in that garden I mean, the darkness and the chaos, the desertion, the betrayal, do you see him standing there in that garden in your place? Seized in your place. Taken captive in your place. Ultimately led to his death in your place. He had committed no crime and no sin, but he came to give his life as a ransom for many. Is that what you see when you see him this morning? Let me pray for us and then we'll respond. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that your Holy Spirit, together with your word, is what you use to change our hearts. I can't do it. People who can speak so, so much more eloquently than I can, they can't change the heart. Only you can change the heart this morning. God, I ask that you would do what only you can do, and you know where the hurt or the pain or the hardening of the heart has come because of betrayal, because of broken relationships, because of mistrust. You know where there's mistrust of you because of things people in here have experienced, I ask this morning that you, by your Holy Spirit, would do the work of changing hearts here. God, we want to not only marvel at the depth of which you have loved us by substituting yourself, Jesus, in our place for our sin, but we want to be overwhelmed by the grace that we've received and empowered to be able to reflect that kind of love to those around us. We ask that you would do this in Jesus' name, for his glory, for our joy. Amen.